This is Intertractional, an exploration of Star Trek through an intersectional feminist lens. Star Trek is both a reflection of our society and an aspiration for our future. The stories it tells shape our world. Intersectionality explores intersecting forms of oppression and how they affect individuals with compound identities. Star Trek is for feminists. Hi, everybody. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Intertractional. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Happy 2020. New decade. New you. New Star Trek. We Picard. should definitely chat about that. Yeah, Picard is coming like really soon. New discovery with uh, what's her face? My girl rocking some long hair. Oh, yeah. Sonequa Martin Green. Yes. Yes. I'm so excited. Some new cartoons. Oh. Yeah, there's a new yeah. animated series. Oh, Lower Decks. I'm super excited yeah. about Lower Decks. Snap. Yeah. Oh my gosh. What are we talking about today? We're talking about the Ferengi and the Bajorans. Yeah. I think we really wanted to talk about the Ferengi in season one, and we just didn't get to it. They are a fraught species. They're very entertaining. A lot of people think that they are space Jews. When we say space Jews, that's a trope and we'll link to the tv tropes article that tells you what what that means other people say that they are space capitalists we really wanted to dig into that especially as uh jewish women and a good foil for them uh, are the bajorans who are sort of uh the the noble space jew with the cardassians being a clear nazi analog like the bajorans take the the role of the jews during the holocaust and there are a lot of other ways that you can read the bajoran cardassian conflict definitely bajorans as jews is a viewpoint uh ferengis as jews is something that people read a lot so we wanted to pair our analysis of these two things together and Mm -hmm. we also we wanted to do a deep space nine episode because we didn't do a lot of them last season and we know you guys love it I mean, definitely, these two species really are like the star aliens of uh, Deep Space Nine. It's like these guys and the and the Cardassian. The Bajorans, they garner a lot of sympathy because they had been occupied by the Cardassians for so long and then were able to get the Cardassians to leave their planet. That's admired strongly and like in line with a lot of Federation values. Whereas the Ferengi are in total opposition to what the Federation or what the what Starfleet especially holds as their values. Uh, I think at one point, um, I was just reading up on this in Memory Alpha, so I don't know what episode this was in, but Quark was defending the Ferengi and points out that they've uh, never had slavery Hmm. and uh, that they're not really a violent race. They go to violence as a last resort. Well, sure, but also like, and so the, like that's what they think is their moral superiority. And then they also have very stark gender divide. Absolutely, and I think it could be easily argued that they're the the female Ferengi are enslaved. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I don't think from Quark's perspective. Oh man. Also, there's like a whole episode where I think people hate it. I kind of love it, but there's a whole episode that's just about rom uh starting a union 
Yeah. <laughs> and I love it. I love it so much. I love it so much. Um, is great. Um, so we are, we're not going to read like our more long form summaries for you today. The two episodes that we watched, Duet episode 19 of season one, aired in June 1993. Mm-hmm. And Heart of Stone episode 14 of season three, which aired in February 1995. Duet is a very well done piece of television Mm -hmm. heart of stone is kind of a blah episode yeah um but neither of them are like really heavy-handed about this allegorical like representation of jews that we want to get into Mm -hmm. they're kind of jumping they're kind of jumping off points i think duet is an episode where um it's mostly between Kira and a Cardassian who may or may not be a war criminal. And he is in custody at the station and she's interrogating him. Um, and when we decided to talk about the Bajorans, uh, this episode leapt to my mind because it pretty clearly cements that at least some of the time the writers are thinking of the Bajorans as Jewish and perhaps as Israeli and the Kardashians at Kardashians <laughs> poor Kim um, the Kardashians as Nazi as Nazis mm-hmm. um, the episode specifically states that they were running labor camps um, and that they were running uh, death camps and that there were atrocities in those camps. So it makes that parallel really clear. The other episode, um, Heart of Stone. Heart of Stone. The the Ferengi plot in Heart of Stone is actually the B plot. Yeah, they're like, they're not super connected. The, the like A plot all. and the B plot and the A plot is just kind of like boring and annoying. Kira and Odo get stuck in a cave. Then Kira is... She's being, like, eaten alive by a stone. Odo is unable to free her. In the course of this, Odo professes his love for Kira, and Kira says, I love you back, and that's when he knows it's definitely not her. And then it's, like, revealed that it's actually the shapeshifter who's, like, in charge of the founders. Yeah, she's annoying as, as fuck. I hate her. Yeah, the main purpose of this episode is to explore Odo's feelings for Kira and his, uh, dual loyalties or lack of loyalties to both the Federation and the Founders. But what I was way more interested in was Nog declaring his interest in being a Starfleet officer and Cisco and Dax having to challenge their prejudices against the Ferengi. If you are reading the Ferengi as space Jews, it takes those presumptions of like what that means um, and turns them on their head. He would be the first Ferengi to join Starfleet. The uniqueness of that and the fact that um, Cisco, in particular has this pre- prejudice against Ferengi that says that there's no way that it would make sense for a Ferengi to want to join Starfleet and like definitely assume some sort of scheme happening. Mm-hmm. It's instigated because Nog has just gone through his Ferengi attainment ceremony. Oh, yeah. Which is definitely a bar mitzvah. Yeah, no, because he comes to him with a bunch of money, which is his, like, it's his bar mitzvah money, mm-hmm. right? Because uh, when you have a bar mitzvah, people give you money, right? 
Yes. Right? Yeah. That does happen. As someone who became Jewish when she was 32, I have to check on these things. Yeah, I know. <laughs> as, a, as I did have, I had a bat mitzvah. So a bat mitzvah is for girls and a bar mitzvah is for boys. At my bat mitzvah, I got a lot of like cash or checks written out to me. Uh, implied that you put it in your college fund or whatever. Okay, so back to uh, so, Ferengi bar mitzvahs. Yeah, so it starts out with, uh, with Nog deciding that he needs to speak to Cisco. It's very urgent. When they meet, he gives him his bar mitzvah money and is like, I would like to purchase a apprenticeship from you. And Cisco's like, that's not how it works. You need to join the academy. One of the ways that you can join the academy is like by having a recommendation from an officer. And Nog's like, oh, great. You're going to write my recommendation. So then Cisco's like, well, no, I, I have no reason to write the re- this recommendation. I'm convinced that this is a scheme. No Ferengi's ever joined Starfleet. And like, I don't think Ferengi, not just you, Nog, in particular, but Ferengi generalized, do not have the right set of values in order to become part of Starfleet. And so, like, go away. Yeah, and... Nog persists. Mm-hmm. Um, it's important to note here that uh, Cisco has hated Nog from the beginning. He wanted to break up his friendship with Jake. Um, and I think the only reason he didn't is like, he yeah. was pulling Nog out of school. And then Jake was like, since you're not in school, I'm going to tutor you what we learned at school. And he was like, oh, this is actually a good friendship. But he was like against the friendship from the beginning. He was like, no son of mine is going to be friends with a Ferengi. Yeah, definitely. Cisco clearly comes packaged with a prejudice against Ferengi, which is also instilled in Starfleet. It's, yeah, it's like institutionalized. It's like institutional uh, speciesism, racism. Exactly. Uh, we we rewatched the clip, which we'll post, of Harry and Tom meeting for the first time in Voyager. And uh, it's like Voyager comes on to the TV scene by way of Deep Space Nine. So they're at Deep Space Nine in Quark's. I don't know. How do you, do you want to describe what happened? Yeah, so Quark is basically trying to um, get... Harry to buy some like worthless trinkets to send back to his parents and then Harry's like oh we were warned about Ferengi at the academy and then Quark gets into high dudgeon about like I'm gonna report this this is like not okay who told you that and uh people are disparaging my people with slurs at the academy so then Harry is very close to buying all of these trinkets when he needs none of them and Tom swoops in and he's like I don't think you need those and they're very cheap other places like let's go and then the the scene is capped off with Tom repeating didn't they warn you about Ferengi at the academy Upon rewatching that scene, it struck me that, like, Harry's parents probably would have fucking loved those trinkets. Truth. I, I mean, like, what's so wrong with buying trinkets? Yeah, there's, I mean, well. I don't whole, know why I'm defending capitalism whole right Whole side now. rant about buying worthless junk that sits on a shelf. Let's put that aside. <laughs> Let us problematize this Ooh. institutional uh, speciesism mm-hmm. against Ferengi, I think stems from the fact that the Ferengi were designed to be antagonists for mm-hmm. the Federation. Yes. Um, and so that's like not a surprise. They end up being like goofy and ca- like a caricature that 
never really comes across as very threatening. Yeah. Um, they were too short to be threatening for, for, <laughs> for one. Um, but how about we expound a little bit on why we think the Ferengi are uh, designed with some negative Jewish stereotypes yeah, so I'm going to admit that this isn't a view that I hold to that closely. I have at times defended the Ferengi ferociously, and I think that that's like probably just fan wanking on my part because I love the show, and I don't want a thing I love to be anti-Semitic. But um, things that people cite, uh, large noses and big ears, which resemble... A lot of anti-Semitic propaganda cartoons that have uh, popped up in Germany and other places over the years. And um, I yeah, guess, I guess we can post some of those. I hate to put that back on the Internet, but um, yeah, I think it exists. We can link to some sources that like talk about Nazi propaganda. Ooh, that's a good that's, um, a, that's a good idea. I think it is well known that one of the one of the negative stereotypes of Jews is that they have big noses and so this like big eared analog of having like this oversized facial feature is a way that you could see the Ferengi having that yeah. connection. Yeah, I mean, and then like historically, um, Christians were forbidden from lending money at interest, but money lending is something that was needed in a, a feudal and capitalist society because um, people need money. So uh, that's a role that Jews would often take because someone needed to do it and they were not religiously forbidden from doing it. And so this association popped up over time of uh, Jews being tied to money and the Ferengi who were, um, I'm pretty sure designed to be capitalists have this really close tie to money. So people watching, seeing these oversized features paired with um, money obsessed characters think oh this is supposed to be a negative jewish stereotype something else i read was east coast accent um exhibited by armin shimmerman who plays quark and wallace sean who plays the grand negus would and god i love wallace sean so much quark what are you doing here uh, i i'm visiting my mother no excuse you've been banned by the fda you must leave Ferengi at once. The like the m most prominent Ferengi are played by actors who are Jewish or have Jewish ancestry. Like you said, Armin Shimmerman and Wallace Shawn. Also, Aaron Eisenberg, who played Nog. The late Aaron Eisenberg. Yeah, may he rest in peace. As well as um, Max Grodenchik, oh, who yeah. plays Rom, who was born to a Jewish family. Yeah. Uh, something that Quark says early on when he's sort of worried about whether or not he should stay on Deep Space Nine is our, our people aren't treated too kindly during regime changes, which points less to a negative Jewish stereotype, but more to like, uh, them being positioned as outcasts in society. An argument that I hear a lot is is that if you think they are anti-Semitic, it means that you see Jews in this way. So if you think that they are an anti-Semitic trope, that means that like you think that Jews are this way. It's kind of circular. Yeah, I, I, I don't like that argument because it implies that the only way to be aware of a stereotype is to have internalized it and believe it, 
where that's not that's not accurate. Like right. as a Jew, uh, I am aware of the stereotypes that Jews are characterized with. A because it's like impossible not to have been told those things, but B because it's uh like important to know for defensive reasons. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like if you don't know what anti-Semitism looks like, you cannot guard against it. Mm-hmm. Um, I found a really great article called Are Ferengi Jewish? Star Trek Deep Space Nine actor Armin Shimmerman answers Ooh. Um, on Player One. One of the things that he says in this article is, in America, people ask, do the Ferengi represent Jews? In England, they ask, do the Ferengi represent the Irish? In Australia, uh. they ask, if the Ferengi represent the Chinese. Um, And then he says, after that, the Ferengi represent the outcast. It's the person who lives among us that we don't fully understand. Mm -hmm. So I think that that's a really good um, kind of encapsulation of what the Ferengi are doing from like a narrative standpoint. And Mm -hmm. I do think that it, it, like expands them outwards from from just being this like negative Jewish stereotype. Mm-hmm. The other thing is they are supposed to represent. Uh, I wrote down, "Greed is good, capitalist, nineteen eighties America." So when we were doing our research for this episode, um, a lot of what we encountered is that not like the Ferengi were never intentionally like quote Jewish, but they were always intentionally capitalist in a way were kind of hyperbolized version of what present day or then present day humans or especially americans right were, were participating in this this is directly from memory alpha in something called the ferengi memo dated 11 may 1987 i would love to ring read this gene roddenberry described the members of the species as connivers and manipulators as well as robber barons they were also referred to as having prodigious sexual appetites roddenberry went on to write they consider themselves too civilized to employ brute force except when they can label it cleverness the act of winning is the most important thing in their system of values. They would agree with the 20th century human athletic coach who said winning isn't the important thing. It is the only thing. The Ferengi believe it is nature's way to reward the clever at the cost of the weak. They consider themselves the good guys who live in a perfect accord with nature's immutable laws of survival. They're honestly puzzled by humanity's concept of good and believe it means only that humans are demented. Why don't we, like, kind of go through the major plot points of the Nog storyline? We talked about him asking Cisco for an apprenticeship. Mm-hmm. And uh, the next day, Jake comes to see Nog at Quark's and is like, that's a really funny joke you played on my dad. And Nog gets super pissed off and he's like, why did you tell your dad I was joking? I'm really serious. And Jake is like, oh, what the fuck? And I think that's all we see of Jake in this episode. Yeah. It's kind of a tender, like... You know, they have a conflict in their friendship. And that's really, like, when your friends don't take your heart's desires seriously, it can be really, really hurtful. Yeah, and I think all I can guess is from Jake's perspective, they've never discussed this. I know that Jake actually doesn't want to go into Starfleet, and, like, that's one of his personal conflicts, so maybe it's hard for him to imagine that anyone wants to. Yeah. I don't know. I don't really know where this is coming from with him. Maybe it would have played out differently if Nog had been, like, 
kind of open about this idea. Mm-hmm. And I do wonder if he got the idea, like it kind of finally occurred to him after his attainment ceremony. Right. Like he had to pick someone to apprentice with. Yeah. So like this is like throughout throughout this episode, everyone is doubting Nog. Um, like Cisco goes to Dax sort of for advice and then also to deputize this task of like deputizing something to Nog. What they what they decide to do is have him inventory this cargo bay that has recently already been inventoried. Due to a computer error, we lost the manifest in this entire cargo bay. Commander Cisco would like you to re-inventory its contents. The entire cargo bay? That's right. By myself? Look, Nog, Starfleet isn't just about diplomacy, exploration. A lot of the time, it's just hard work. And and I don't know if any of you have ever worked in retail, but inventory is super boring and detail-oriented and uh, takes forever. Dax is convinced that he's going to steal something. He doesn't. He, in fact, finds things that were missing. In their next conversation, Dax is like, okay, that proves that he's a hard worker, but, like, why on earth would he want to go into Starfleet? And neither of them can imagine why he would want to, even though they themselves wanted to. It's, like, very weird. Yeah, I think because they're still, like, stuck in this monolithic notion of what Ferengi are and what Ferengi want, I think they were both expecting Nog to, like, fail this test. I I think that in some ways this episode is the Deep Space Nine writers um, or the Star Trek writers sort of reconceptualizing uh, the species that they've only portrayed in a predominantly negative or farcical light um, and challenging some of those uh, stereotypes that we've been presented with. And so at this point, this leads me to like Nog has this reckoning with Cisco during which Cisco rejects um, his request. But I'm afraid I'm going to have to turn you down. Turn me down? Why? Did I do something wrong? It's not anything you did, Nog. You're just not Academy material. I think that he's trying to draw him out. You know, he's being really negative and really harsh and like challenge, getting him to the point where he will be angry enough to say something honest and deep, mm-hmm. which which he delivers. It's not a joke or a scheme. I want to join Starfleet. I want it more than anything I've ever wanted in my life. You're a Ferengi. Why would you want to be in Starfleet? Where's the profit in it? I don't care about profit. Then what do you care about? Come on, Nog, tell me. Why is it so damned important that you get into Starfleet? Why are you doing this? I think that dramatically that scene is really good and really moving Um, from a pedagogical standpoint. It's pretty problematic. At one point, Cisco is like manhandling this child and kind of shaking him. Oh, but people love that shit. It's like this form of like tough love teacher masculinity role model um, that I feel like some men would defend even today. I mean, I don't like that stuff. It's a little bit reminiscent of law school where people just like bark questions at you and like you're supposed to learn through that. I mean, Nog is really provoked. He's like shouting and crying. Because I don't want to end up like my father! Your father. That's right. My father. He's been chasing profit his whole life. 
And what has it gotten him? Nothing. And you know why? Because he doesn't have the lobes. This thing about how Rom is not a good Ferengi made me wonder if one of the reasons that Nog is so interested in joining Starfleet is that he has a lot of internalized speciesism against his own people. Yeah, I mean, he is growing up as one of three Ferengis on this space station uh, filled with Bajorans and humans and um, sees a lot of prejudice against Ferengis, but also sees the consequences of cultural values being placed on his father that his father can't live up to. As a woman, that's something I can relate to, right? Uh, sometimes I feel like a failure as a woman because like I'm not good at cooking and I don't like cleaning and stuff like that. And so mm. like there's this negative thing that can happen when you try to fulfill a role that's like not suited for you. Um, it's like this weird form of like cultural oppression against the individual. Being motivated by an internalized self-hatred, whether or not like ultimately it works out positively for yourself, holding on to self-hatred that's rooted in prejudice mm -hmm. is harmful. Yeah. I mean, do you think that that's what Nog is doing? Because he's not trying, he's decided not to try to be a good Ferengi. Mm -hmm. My father tried to be a good Ferengi, but he's... He's not. He went into business when he should have been, gone into science. So I'm going to go into science and do something that I'm good at. That way I don't end up disappointed in myself like him. Do you think that that narrative is like internalized anti-Ferengiism? Mm. <laughs> or do you think that that narrative is like rejecting the system? I think it can be both. I think Nog has other motivations other than this one that I've identified of some internalized anti-Ferengianism. It's interesting when you talk about not being good, good at cooking or not liking cleaning, like one of the things that has been a really hard thing for me to accept is that I really love cooking and I am Ooh, like good at cleaning. Fun. One of my therapeutic activities is doing laundry and like packing. <laughs> yeah. uh, so, so you have some internalized feminist perspectives yeah some internalized like what i would consider toxic feminism which dictates that what is traditionally women's work is not valuable to society like which is in a way a form of anti-feminism right right because society has traditionally devalued women's work and then toxic feminism comes along and also devalues that work and says the way to claim your value as a woman is by doing men's work. Right. Exactly. And it's, so, it's like really hard and it's taken me a long time in my life to kind of like pick that apart. You know, I think even like going to MIT is an example of this where like at that point in my life, I was like, okay, the, the way that I can prove that I'm rejecting this traditional notion of femininity is by going to this very well-renowned STEM school that prepares people for jobs that are traditionally or predominantly held by men, uh, you know, and then becoming president of my sorority yeah. <laughs> is like this like weird like contradiction where I 
definitely intrinsically prefer the company of women and gravitate towards what are traditionally considered women's natural inclinations. Mm. Um, oh, yeah. You even like note taking. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I struggle with some of this, too. I want you to keep going. But I have I have my own thoughts. Um, so it's still like it's still an internal struggle that I like, you know, I like talk about in therapy sometimes. Tomorrow I'm going to an open house for a cooking school in San Francisco trying to figure out a way to embrace those things that I love doing that also fits in with my feminism and like wanting to be a powerful force in the world. Yeah, I mean, like, as as someone who is married and largely unemployed and considers herself a feminist, um, and I'm, like, walking around the word housewife right now, um, like, that, uh, which is not something I wanted to be and, and not really something I identify with, but it's just, like, the circumstance of, like, me trying to figure out what I want to do with my life and having gotten married. I can relate to a lot of what you're saying you know in different ways but like the same ways where I have my internalized toxic feminism like I'm not allowed to do these things I'm not allowed to like these things I think if Nog wants to become part of Starfleet even though he actually is good at business and likes business as like a way of like rejecting traditional Ferengi roles then we're more in what you're talking about but I'm not sure that that's what's going on here. Mm. I think that some of it is like internalized anti-Ferengi semitism but I think that some of it is being in this different environment is recognizing that there are different options for him. Yeah, he sees an expansive set of possibilities for himself and for his life. And I think that's, if we're in the realm of putting value judgments on things, that's like an inherent good. Seeing a plethora of opportunity for yourself. Like one of the reasons that feminism is so important and necessary is that it gives women the perspective that any opportunity is available to them. Valuing one over the other where you get into dangerous territory and where like I don't know, patriarchal capitalism steps in and says, well, if women are going to enter the labor force, then all labor becomes less valuable. And I think that's like led us to the current form of capitalism that we suffer under, which is like, I don't know, neo-robber baronism or whatever you want to call it, (laughs) where like five people own half of the world's wealth and can oppress their workers and get away with it and like say that they're doing good because they're making jobs. This is like I think a kind that, of a digression. I think, that, I think that Quark actually calls himself a job creator in one episode. I, I, I mean, I think this is, you know, if we're critiquing the Ferengi, we should be critiquing capitalism. I think it ties back in. We, we've wandered away from anti-Semitism, but <laughs> I'm fine with it. I'm fine with yeah. it. We've pretty clearly identified all the ways that they're anti-capitalist portrayal in the Ferengi became sort of anti-Semitic. These episodes in Deep Space Nine start to do the work of undoing some of that and creating characters that are really um, relatable, uh, human. Uh, Just like bringing it back to to Nog, he goes through this great character development over the course of this series. You see him being very misogynistic early on. Um, you see him be scheming early on and really embracing his family's values. 
both as he and his father are more exposed to Starfleet, they both change. Yeah, Rom definitely becomes more assertive. He um, gains some sort of self-confidence in the fact that he is very good at engineering Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, also wins the heart of the Davo girl, Lita. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mary's the the hottest chick on the show by by some standards. Shout out to Chase Masterson who plays Lita. Oh my god, Chase! Please talk to us. We really love you. fucking awesome. Yeah, and I think this is one of the episodes that starts to be like, okay, even if they are space Jews, like what's so wrong with that? I mean, I don't really have any proof of this, but I think that this episode is one of the ones where uh, they Deep Space Nine starts to try to undo any harm that they've done by creating these characters. Yeah, I, I agree. I don't have a whole lot more to say about this episode. Um, there is a random thing that I'll call out, which is um, there's a male ensign that we have never seen before or since who's pregnant and having twins. What? And uh, Bashir and O'Brien are hosting a baby shower. Oh my god. This is like randomly in this episode. Like, I was not paying attention. <laughs> I'm so sad that I missed that. Oh my god. I can, I can see it. It was like yeah. five seconds of the show. It's easy to miss. Oh, I love that Miles had to be involved in that. He's so bad at that stuff. That mm. must have been funny. <laughs> I think it still like enforces this gendered baby shower, which I think our generation is eliminating. I do think it's I feel cute. like you're really optimistic about that. Like my oh, Facebook feed is filled with gender reveal parties. Gender reveal parties that men and women are equally invited to. Oh, sure. Okay. Rather than a baby shower <laughs> where it's only ladies who show up. I don't know. I hate gender reveal parties. I think they're fucking stupid, but like at least everybody goes to them. <laughs> I don't know. So maybe let's take a break. Bajor is in Israel. <laughs> uh, I went to Israel recently and um, it was a wonderful and weird and confusing uh, experience in a lot of ways. And one of the things that I haven't had a lot of experience with is needing to uh, accommodate my own appearance to appease someone else's culture and I found myself in the situation of like needed to, needing to cover my knees and uh, wear long sleeves in order to visit religious sites needing to cover my hair in order to visit a mosque and uh, realizing that the religious institution of, of uh, Jewish life in Israel is mostly orthodox which means that women have to pray separately and um, that Uh, most of the synagogues there are set up that way and realizing that like I can never live there in that environment um and so going to this place that I know is valuable and like will and does save the lives of uh many Jews who are persecuted in their own countries but realizing that there is a gender inequity built into that society and being unhappy with that was very uh provocative and confusing experience and um i was scared to admit that i'd been to israel i feel like i'm walking i'm I'm stepping in hot water and everyone's gonna uh call me a a a zionist who's oppressing palestinians just by admitting that i've been there yeah no that's really real i mean i have a lot of 
problems with Israel and like the Israeli occupation of Palestine could also be seen as an analog to the Cardassian occupation of Bajor. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I think uh, one thing that I've heard people debate and that uh, just sort of like pops up as a search term when you type in like, are the Bajorans? It's like, are the Bajorans Israelis or Palestinians? Mm -hmm. Um, And I think uh, depending on the episode, they're both. I think that's a place to start the conflation of being Jewish, even going to Israel as a Jew is somehow seen as supporting the Israeli government or being in support of Israeli government's policies around Palestine. Right. Or that the Zionist project of having a state is conflated with with settlements in area in the area that's set apart for Palestine and uh, like the illegal occupation. Mm-hmm. And like in my mind, those are two separate things. Like it's an expression of anti-Semitism to to do that conflation. I think relating it back to this episode, there is understandably on Bejor like strong anti-Cardassian feeling. Anytime you make an entire people responsible for some particular atrocity, you're removing any that individual's like agency. I yeah. mean, I think this is something that you see in Deep Space Nine. You see Kira at times being disappointed in what the Bajoran government ends up doing now that it exists. That's true. In like the overbearing nature of of the religious authorities sort of claiming um, political power, like eliminating a religious freedom, which is one of the things that I chafe against within Israel. I don't know how many dissenters there were in the Cardassian population who didn't want the invasion or the occupation of Bejor to be happening, but conceivably they did exist. Closest we get is this guy in this episode, and I have mixed feelings on his innocence. To briefly summarize what happens in this episode, duet being a first season episode, like is really one of the first times that we dive deeply into what happened during the Bajoran uh, or the Cardassian occupation of Bajor, which is an extremely important part of Deep Space Nine's overarching plot. There is a Cardassian who comes aboard Deep Space Nine seeking treatment for Kalinora syndrome, something that people who were in a particular mining accident at this labor camp run by the Cardassians during the occupation. This explosion led to people having this particular illness. Yeah, so it's like you could only get this syndrome from this one accident. And he definitely has it, and he is Cardassian, which means he was on the side of the occupiers and not someone who was um, in the forced labor camp. At the beginning of the episode, uh, Kira is all excited to meet somebody who was at the labor camp. Because she helped to free it. Uh, so so Kira is like part of this uh, resistance cell called the Shakur, which is one faction of the larger Bajoran militia, which is also known as the Bajoran military guard. Her cell is either, they're either resistance fighters or they're terrorists, depending on how you look at it, or both. They liberated the Galatep labor camp, which seemed like a concentration camp to me. Lander. If you'd been there 12 years ago when we liberated that camp, if you'd seen the things I saw, all those Bajoran bodies, starved, brutalized, 
Do you know what Cardassian policy was? No, I'm not even talking about the murder. Murder was just the end of the fun for them. First came the humiliation. Mothers raped in front of their children. Husbands beaten until their wives couldn't recognize them. Old people buried alive because they couldn't work anymore. I think I'll have a talk with our guest. This character, the Cardassian, Kira like immediately puts him in the brig because she's like, Anybody who was Cardassian who was there is guilty of uh, war crimes. Um, initially, he is named Maritza. He was like the filing clerk at this labor camp. They go through this arc of Maritza isn't Maritza. He's Goldar Heel, who was the commander mm -hmm. in charge of that labor camp. But then like Goldar Heel is famously dead and also would not have been at the camp at the time of this accident that resulted in everybody getting Colinara syndrome. So he wouldn't have had the... the, the... He yeah. could not have had it. Uh, like slowly it's revealed that he got like plastic surgery in order to look like Goldar Heel and that like maybe he placed himself in the position of being like captured in order to be put on trial for Gar Goldar Heel's war crimes as a way to atone himself for being a participant in these atrocities so like here we have a character of a person who really has remorse for his participation in this horrible thing and i mean and his participation is really limited he really was a filing clerk but he was also there and did nothing saved no one did not put himself at risk and in my mind i agree with his perspective i think that he's guilty one of the things that we learned about this episode it's based on a book slash play slash movie called The Man in the Glass Booth that itself has some basis in the trial of Adolf Eichmann. Mm -hmm. um, one of or the was inspired by yeah, inspired by the fact that Eichmann was living under a, a false name when he was finally found and brought to trial. But the the Man in the Glass Booth, my understanding, I've not watched or read this but my understanding of the plot of that is that um a jewish man who escaped the holocaust escaped by falsifying dental records that showed that he was a nazi he ends up being put on trial as that nazi then pretends that he is that nazi to give people the opportunity to have that trial happen it doesn't sound like a very good play. <laughs> it sounds confusing as This is as a fuck. good episode, but I don't think it sounds like a very good play. I think it's good to have this context yeah. uh, in terms of like, are the Bajorans Palestinians? Are they Jews? Are they Israelis? Definitely, at least some of the time, they are Jews. And the fact that this episode is based on that play, I think, is evidence of that. Yes. I do also think that it gives the episode some theatricality and drama that is rare. It's very intellectual, psychological. Yeah, it almost reminds me of like original series mm -hmm. where everything that happens is just a discussion. And uh, Nana Visitor. We learned how to pronounce her name today. Nana Nana. <laughs> Does an... I think gives an amazing performance oh, in this yeah. episode. Really plays like a wide range of emotion. 
and starts kind of questioning her own drive to gain vengeance. Yeah. I don't know. I think that it's fine that she wants vengeance. Honestly, I think that she's examining herself. I mean, one of the things similar to the other episode, uh, one of the lessons that Kira learns in this episode is not to hate all Cardassians. The same way uh, Cisco learns that like not all Ferengi are greedy and scheming, that her anger should be more directed to the people responsible. Um, and that he is just one man, couldn't really do anything. And she thinks that he's a good person, in fact. Yeah, I think that like part of what she bases that he's a good person on is this whole scheme that he's come yeah, up with. The lengths that he's gone to to uh, give the Bajorans someone to uh, someone to persecute, um, a, a way to have their vengeance and to, to mourn. You didn't commit those crimes. And you couldn't stop them. You were only one man. Oh, no, don't you see? I have to be punished. We all have to be punished. Major, you have to go out and tell them I'm Galdail. It's the only way. Why are you doing this? For Cardassia. Cardassia will only survive if it stands in front of Bajor and admits the truth. My trial will force Cardassia to acknowledge its guilt. And we're guilty, all of us. My death is necessary. What you're asking for is another murder. Enough good people have already died. I won't help kill another. So they exonerate him, and then they decide to walk him through the promenade with no security. Um, I guess because, like, Worf isn't in the cast yet. <laughs> <laughs> like, they they should have, like, used the transporter. I don't know why they do this. They walk him in full view of everyone with his fake-ass face where he looks like Goldar Heel. And there's, like, this drunk guy. He, he appears a few times. And he's just, like, he's, like, he's drunk, he's Bajoran, and he hates Cardassians. And he appears, like, He's the other times. person in the brig. He's the other person in the brig. But I never realized this. He's also the dude who kills Maritza at the end. Um, I didn't clock that. That's has a poetic nature to it. They really want to drive home that um, Kira has forgiven him and, like, forgiven the Cardassians in general. Why? He wasn't our heel. Why? He's a Cardassian. That's reason enough. No. It's not. Uh, can we talk more about how the Bajorans might be Jews? Yeah. Uh, ancient Bajorans were renowned for their accomplishments in science, math, philosophy, and art. And when we first meet them in TNG, they're living in diaspora. A lot of Bajorans are part of the Maquis, mm-hmm. um, which is the resistance movement that it, like, like crops up when the Federation like cedes some territory where a lot of Bajorans are living to the Cardassians. Um, the Maquis are directly referential to the French resistance during yes. World War II, which yes. were also called the Maquis. And I and I think this also just like points to something in Judaism where you are supposed to take a stand with the oppressed because you were oppressed in Egypt. And so for Bajorans to join in other resistance movements um, really tracks uh, one thing I wanted to talk about was the link between the Shakur and 
Jewish resistance in Israel before Israel was formed as a state. So there's definitely a parallel here. Like we, I talked about how uh, Kira was part of the Shikar resistance cell, which is a subset of the Bajoran militia. In Israeli history, um, a group called the Irgun were a paramilitary organization that targeted a lot of the British Mandate of Palestine, like their infrastructure. Like during World War II and a little bit post-World War II, uh, the British were not allowing Jewish refugees who were fleeing the Holocaust to enter Israel. But like the Jews who were already there, it was fine, but like you couldn't come in and any who did succeed in illegally immigrating were rounded up and put into a labor camp in Israel itself. Very analogous to what's happening at the United States southern border right now, where people are refugees um, seeking asylum in the United States. For for sure. It's it's very similar. So the Irgun decided that if the British are no longer protecting us and like helping us in our in our Zionist mission of creating a safe place for Jews, then they are um, illegal occupiers and we do not want them here and we need to be in charge ourselves. And they sort of splintered off from other Zionist groups and took a more radical approach. Um, The major thing that they did is they bombed the King David Hotel in Jerusalem, which was one of the main strongholds of the British government and like their military organization um but the death toll of that bombing included citizens jewish arab and british they also liberated members of aliabet detention camp which was this detention camp that i was talking about um they released 200 members so there i think is this like direct parallel between the Shakur and the Irgun of like being this organization that at the time was considered terrorist but was instrumental in like throwing off the occupying force and creating a new nation people are looking at Kira now like she's a hero but like several years ago she was like a terrorist a terrorist who has a death toll of like citizen blood on her hands and i think the parallel goes even even further than that where members of the bajoran resistance who were at one point regarded as terrorists like become instrumental figures in the the new bajoran government some of the irgun leaders were then leaders in the israeli government as it was being formed check out our episode notes for more information on this um so this like really plays into my uh like bajorans are jewish bajorans are like the noble jew they're also like extremely religious they're very spiritual and they face uh prejudice within starfleet like Worf is allowed to wear his his little sash and uh Ensign Roe has to take off her earring. Ensign Roe has to take off her earring. For some reason, Bajorans are not allowed to express their religion through things that they wear on their body when mm-hmm. other religions and other species are. It's very inconsistent of Starfleet to dictate that to Bajorans. Bajor is not accepted into the Federation at the outset. And then, like... Bajoran participation in the Maquis becomes problem as they are attempting to become part of the Federation. I think that's like tokenism or or prejudice or like a demonstration of white supremacy. People who are white or of the dominant culture like can can behave as individuals mm-hmm. versus people who are part of these oppressed groups are representative of their group. 
it does speak to this thing that we were that we both mentioned earlier where like as Jews you are considered to be responsible for the actions of Israel and the actions of rogue Jews who go off and like live in Palestine when they're not supposed to mm-hmm. like um, and you are supposed to be able to speak to all of that. And so holding Bajor accountable for what rogue Bajorans are doing in the Maquis is a little bit ridiculous. I feel like you looked up some stuff about occupying forces because there are like a lot of different perspectives on the Bajorans. And I think at times they are more akin to being the Palestinians in Israel. And uh, I think you looked up some stuff about that. I was trying to collect some information on like resistance movements and Mm. Googling resistance movements. You basically get World War II. Then I was like, okay, what what is an occupation? Mm, mm -hmm. Uh, Wikipedia has a very extensive list of military occupations that have happened since the Hague Convention defined what a military occupation is. This happened in 1907. The occupation of East East Jerusalem, the West Bank, the Gaza Strip, and Golan Heights are um, all listed as a military occupation according to the Hague Conventions. Like, from the perspective of the occupying force, any resistance to that occupation is terrorism. But from the perspective of the occupied, resistance is heroic whether or not the bajoran resistance fighters are heroes is like a matter of who's writing history so ronald d moore love him uh what one of the producers or writers or whoever in star trek who i don't think is probably sexist uh commented depending on the episode you could call bajor israel or iran or even america and the cardassians could be germans or russians or several other examples but we don't really try to make bajor a direct analogy to any specific contemporary country or people yeah and so i think this plays into this idea that we said before whereas like uh ferengi were the negative stereotype that the world sees jews as and bajorans are how jews see themselves and saying that it could be any of these other groups makes sense they they write it in such a way where people can graft these histories of oppression and liberation um which is something that i think star trek does really well Mm -hmm. yeah having an not direct analog is like you know give some freedom of movement and freedom of storytelling i mean i i really think the bajorans are fun to have stories about yeah Part of why Ensign Rowe is so, like, captivating in TNG and part of why uh, I think Deep Space Nine is this, like, sleeper hit slash fan favorite. Bajor and uh, Sisko's role as the emissary and, like, all of these other aspects of the overarching Deep Space Nine story directly flow from having built this particular people having this particular history cool all right (laughs) i think we're done so guys how are we asking for donations paypal.me slash federation and vampire paypal.me slash federation and vampire um we are really excited to be tackling star trek picard when it comes up and a transition for one season into being a a feminist 
Star Trek recap show. Uh, I'm sure there will be other recap shows, but are they as feminist as us? Yeah. <laughs> so. Question mark. Um, if you are ex- as excited about this as we are, please donate to us and help make this a sustainable reality. Rate, review, and tell all of your friends. Oh, yeah. Tell all of your friends. <laughs> tell all of our friends. If you prove to us that you've told your friends, we will give you a shout out, maybe even a t-shirt. Um, all right. So. Thanks for listening. Live long and prosper. Peace and long life. Intertractional is a production of Federation and Fempire, written and produced by Ryan Ascalisi and Becca Motola Barnes. Original music by Danny Kafka. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Intertractional. Tell us what you think. Join our Facebook group to discuss this episode with us and other fans. Email us at intertractional at gmail.com. You can even send us a voice memo. Visit our website at intertractional.com for show notes, images, and citations. Intertractional is available on all podcast platforms, including iTunes. If you like this podcast, help others find it by taking a moment to rate and review us and subscribe on iTunes. It really makes a big difference. If you want to donate to us, you can do so at paypal.me slash Federation and Fempire. That's Fempire spelled F-E-M-P-I-R-E. Also, don't forget Outlander. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Which I still need to watch. That's the one where they're on a space whale. No, there's, there's nothing. No, that's Farscape. Oh, my God. Okay, I don't know what any of these things are. Outlander is the time ta- time traveling romance with Scottish people. Oh, God, yeah. That, I would also love that. It's um, really sexy. 